What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back. On to... On to Titanic. We're back! Part three. Kaylin is over there. Part three. Doing all of the work. I'm sitting here making a fucking <laughs> I book. am on my... I am on my third Kraken Kalen Rum Runner. It is 1.12 a.m. Oh, my God. Uh, we're doing great. By the way, if you need to go to bed, please let me know. That way you can go to bed. No, no, no. It's all good. I, I've i had very late bedtime since arriving over here. If you guys remember from the earlier days of our podcasting, Kaylin used to go to bed at approximately 8 to 9 p.m. because I had to get up for work at 2.30 a.m., but... All of my friends on the east coast of the United States of America are uh, still awake at this time, so my bedtime has shifted to stay awake for uh, my friends. So normally I'm up till about midnight, 1 a.m. talking to people anyway, and so podcasting a little late, it's not a big deal. I am also off tomorrow, and I have three days after tonight to uh, get plenty of rest, and I slept in till about 11.30 today, so... uh, the only person we gotta converse with is Daniel, who is in the other room, and he is perfectly fine. And we're good. Okay, cool. I'm down for it then. Yeah. With that, it's actually good because if you if you were podcasting right now, I would probably be snoring, but not because you're boring, but just because I'd be tired yes. and I'd be like, I'm because it's one twelve in the morning. I'm so there. comfy, and I'm listening. Yes. <laughs> and it's five yes. p.m. here for that reference, by the way, everybody. <laughs> so in the meantime. This is Two Blondes in a Bloody Boat. I'm Kaylin. I'm Ellen. Kaylin is over there doing all of the work, which I still love. <laughs> it's okay. It's it's really cool because, you know, it's almost 1.15 over here, and I'm about to tell you that at 1.30 in the morning, the Titanic's downward angle was increasing, but no, not more than five degrees. So it's just like, it's like I'm living the Titanic right now at the appropriate times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's actually fair. Um, That's fair. Yeah, so this is as tired as everybody else would have been, I imagine. <laughs> um, so like I said, it was uh, facing a downward angle, and this angle was increasing. Uh, not more than five degrees with a, uh increasing list towards the port side. If you remember, it did get struck on the starboard side. Sorry, I guess I should uh, remind everyone. We are talking about the sinking of the Titanic. In the first episode, we covered the backstory, the superstitions, the beginning of the maiden voyage, the problems, and I believe we got all the way up to the collision. And then in the second episode, we covered 
the collision, the effects of the collision, the distress calls, the lifeboats, which was probably about four pages by themselves, uh, the flooding of all the compartments, kind of the mechanics of how the ship actually started to go down. We started to get into some of the sad stories about um, husbands and wives having to say goodbye to each other. Um, we covered some of my favorite fun facts that I found out about the wreckage. Um, but in this next episode, we're going to try to cover... Um, at least the rest of the sinking as well as the final moments of the Titanic and then probably if we don't finish all of this because we're about halfway through probably for the last episode we will cover kind of the aftermath as well as um, most of the findings of the discovery of the Titanic by Dr. Robert D. Ballard which is the book that I would like to share with you guys um, so a lot happened with the Titanic and the discovery after, of course, the ship was discovered about 75 years later. All right, so we'll get back into it once I find what page I was on. I believe I was on 19. Sweet. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, again, there was um, the deteriorating situation, which was reflected in the tone of the messages uh, sent from the ship. Which, of course, was... Um, they were sending messages to other ships in the nearby area. Um, one of the other... One of the final messages that was sent was at... Um, 125... Or just before 125, they said, We are putting the women off the boats. So, kind of letting any ships in the area know that we're putting lifeboats in the water. Yeah. Um, the around lookout. 125, they sent out a message saying, The engine room is getting flooded. At 1.35 and 1.45, they sent out that um, the engine room was full up to the boilers. And this was actually the ship's uh, last intelligible signal. Um, it was sent as the ship's electrical system began to fail, and any messages after that were more jumbled and unintelligible. Which, to be fair, an unintelligible and, like, difficult message to understand after getting distress signals is still a message. That just means we're in deep shit now. Yes. If um, you hear somebody going underwater and they start gargling at some point, like, you know that's a probably bubble, bubble, not bubble. a good sign. Mm-hmm. So, the two radio operators, um, they did continue sending out all the distress signals that they could until the very end. Um... So, like I said, the first couple lifeboats that were sent out were not filled to capacity. They only had 20, 14, 32 people in these lifeboats. Um, of course, as people started to realize that the ship was actually going down and they were in true danger, the remaining lifeboats were filled much closer to capacity. Um, and with increasing, increasing rush as well. Um, so... Lifeboat number 11 was filled with five people more than its rated capacity. As it was lowered, it was nearly flooded by water being pumped out of the ship. Kind of funny. They're pumping water out of the ship and it's going into a lifeboat with kind of funny. some of their survivors. Yeah. Um, Those people just weren't meant to number survive. Number 13. I know, right? Uh, number 13 narrowly avoided the same problem, but those aboard were able to release the ropes from which the boat was being lowered, and they just dropped in nice and quick. Uh, it drifted astern directly under number 15 as it was being lowered, and the ropes were cut in time so that both boats made it away safely. 
the first signs of panic were seen when a group of male passengers attempted to rush portside lifeboat number 14 mm-hmm. as it was being lowered with 40 people on board. Fifth Officer Lowe, who was in charge of the boat, fired three warning shots into the air to control the oh, crowd, damn, uh, but did not cause any injuries. He I know, serious, that's when though. we first hear an alert about. He's like, hey, back up, please. Yeah. Um, number 16 was lowered five minutes later. Among those aboard was stewardess Violet Jessup. And this is actually kind of crazy because she would actually repeat the same experience four years later after surviving the sinking of one of the Titanic sister ships, the Britannic, in the First World War. She needs to get a new job. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. Yeah. <laughs> like, girl... Well, this was her first one, but the second one was four years later. So, hopefully this prepared her for the uh, sinking of the second yeah, ship. Yeah, but who survives the sinking of a ship and goes, you know what I should do? I should continue on as a boat steward. This is my life's mm-hmm. work. I should go back to sea. Like, there's just a um, um, questionable decision making there. Yeah. So, like I said, there were... Uh, for collapsible boats, and collapsible boat C was launched at 1.40 from a uh, now largely deserted starboard area of the deck as most of those on deck had moved to the stern of the ship because, again, the boat was going down. Um, <laughs> on board this boat was the uh, White Star chairman of the board and leading uh, managing director, J. Bruce Ismay. Like I said, I talked about him earlier, the captain's boss, basically. Uh, this was the Titanic's most controversial survivor. Uh, he did make the escape from the ship, and his act was later condemned as cowardice. So you know the saying, you better go down with the ship. None of the engineers survived, none of the firemen survived, the captain did not survive. Sorry, ruined that I mean, but he wasn't um, the captain, though. No, but he was the captain's boss, yeah. and he was kind of in charge of all the cruise liners. And he definitely made sure he got on a boat. Um, at 1.40, lifeboat number two was lowered. Uh, while it was still at deck level, uh, Night Roller... Night Roller? Light Roller! I'm sorry. Um, he found that the boat was occupied by men, and he later wrote they weren't British, nor of the English-speaking race, um, but a uh, they were known as a broad category of people that were called uh, Dagos. Mm. So I don't know where they were from, but they were not English. Uh, After he evicted them by threatening them with his revolver, he was unable to find enough women and children to fill the boat, and he lowered it with only 25 people on board out of the possible 40. Wow, this guy's a con. I don't like this guy. Yeah. That's why I keep saying his name wrong, because I don't like him. Yeah. (laughs) Um, He's just not smart. So, um, No. Because, like, you have seats on the boat. There's no women and children there. Just, Just don't yeah, send the boat down empty. Like, like, send it with the men. Up. Come on. These people deserve to survive, yeah. too. Yeah, exactly. It's just women and children first, not women and children only. He's, just, he's, issue. Not, he's not a smart dude. He's not a smart dude. No. That's all I have to say. Um, so this not smart dude, he actually even denies entry for John Jacob Astor. Who is the wealthiest man on the ship. Richest man on the boat. He gets his wife, his pregnant wife, onto lifeboat number four at 155. But again, he was refused entry by uh, Light Dollar. 
even though 20 of the 60 seats aboard were unoccupied. Um, the last boat to be launched was Collapsible D, which left at 2.05, which is about 15 minutes before the boat went down. And it had 25 people aboard. Two more men jumped into the boat as it was being lowered. Uh, the sea had reached the boat deck and the uh, forecastle was deep underwater. First class passenger Edith Evans gave up her place in a boat and ultimately died in the disaster. She was one of only four first class women to perish in the sinking of the Titanic. Uh, several survivors, including third class passenger Eugene Daly and first class passenger George Reams, claimed that they saw an officer shoot one or two men during a rush for a lifeboat and then shoot himself. You might remember that from the Titanic, too. He that shot himself? I don't remember that he part. Did. Um, it was when he shot, I believe it was, I don't even remember his name. It was Jack's friend. And it was his friend of a friend. He was like one of the guys in the group. Mm-hmm. And he got shot by one of the officers. And then everyone was like telling him what a monster he was. And then the officer shoots himself and falls off the boat. Jokes on all you guys. Like, um, you probably should have just kept your mouths shut until you were off the boat. Yeah. So, was um, that about the time whenever the third class people were finally making it up to the top? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. And so they've already seen how um, bad it is. So they understand what they're trying to do. Yeah. They see all the lifeboats gone. Yes. <laughs> um, Captain Smith carried out a final tour of the deck. He... Uh, told the radio operators and other crew members, uh, it is now every man for himself. Damn. Okay. So he told the men attempting to launch collapsible boat A, he said, well, boys, do your best for the women and children and look out for yourselves. And then he returned to the bridge just before the ship began its final plunge. Um, it is thought that he may have chosen to go down with the ship and died in the bridge or on the bridge when it was engulfed by the sea. Um, However, there are some people that are claiming that they saw him jump overboard from the bridge as the ship sank. Um, He, like I said, he may have done that. Um, And while working to free collapsible boat B, Harold Bride saw Captain Smith dive from the bridge into the sea just before the bridge was submerged. Okay. So that guy seems like a pretty good account. I mean, I mean, I think... Either going down in the bridge or jumping into the sea as a bridge going down. I think either one is still considered going down with the ship. I think. Yes. In it my opinion. Like it. He didn't jump into a lifeboat is what it means yes. to me. He wasn't even aiming for a lifeboat. At um, point. No. Uh, the ship's designer, Mr. Andrews. Uh, Thomas Andrews was reported last seen in the first class smoking room around 2.05. Remember when he was fixing the clock yes. on the boat? Uh, apparently making no attempt to escape. Uh, however, there is circumstantial evidence suggesting that Andrews was sighted in the smoking room prior to 1.40, as well as other reports that indicate that Andrews then continued assisting in the evacuation. Uh, he was reportedly seen throwing chairs uh, into the ocean for passengers to cling to in the water, heading to the bridge and perhaps in search of Captain Smith. Okay. Um, mess steward... Uh, Cecil Fitzpatrick claimed to have seen Andrews jumps o- jump overboard in the bridge with Smith, but neither man survived. Yes. As it would be expected. Now, I just want to take a moment. Yes, the ship's designer and the ship's captain, they're going to go down yeah. with the ship. 
Um, I would just like to point out, I don't know if you've noticed, but I have a lot of very specific timestamps here. Um, I want to know what victims had their little pen and paper out and were writing all these times down this entire time. Taking down times and evidence. You see the captain? He's, what time, what time he died? What time he died? Okay, good. Did he jump? No. Approximately 2.05, Thomas Andrews was seen in the smoking room. Like, who, I don't, I didn't look too much into this, but like, even the book and all the things I found online and the the documentaries I watched, they all have like, approximate times like this. But they don't like, it doesn't make, officially it, yeah. say how they got them. It doesn't them. make any sense for them to have official times like that whenever, like, uh-uh. well, I guess the guy fixing the clock kind of helps to explain that, but still. Yeah, but he died. <laughs> yeah. That's true. I get the I get the messages. I get the alerts. I get the distress signals. But like all of these lifeboats being sent off at certain times. Yes. And like I, I also get the official sinking of the ship too, because I'm sure there were people in lifeboats that had watches that watched it go down at two twenty. Yes. Um, I get the collision. But it's just like it's the lifeboats getting off that I don't understand. Like Who's checking their watch as the lifeboats are launching into the cold, dark sea? I don't know. That's a very good question. But there are also a lot of of different witnesses in that scenario. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of these stories don't line up is the thing, too. So you got to kind of understand that some of it's hearsay. Some of it was quote unquote witnessed. But. We're dealing with a mass hysteria of people at the time. Yes, exactly. Mm. Okay. So, as most of the passengers and crew, uh, they headed towards the stern. Because, again, it was going down down first. You remember from the movie, the stern was, like, the last thing to go down. Um, The second, a second-class passenger, Father Thomas Biles, was hearing confessions and giving absolutions. Uh, as well as the Titanic's band players um, were playing outside of the gymnasium. So oh, that was real? This is going to be a big part. I'm Yes, I'm probably going to talk about the band a little bit longer than I should, but the Titanic had two separate bands of musicians. Uh, one was a quintet led by Wallace Hartley. You remember him from the movie because he's the one saying it was a pleasure serving with you guys as the ship's going mm-hmm. down. I don't know if you remember that part. Um, So there's actually a good chunk about him that was actually true. Like, I was actually really impressed, like, going back and learning all of this with how they did the movie The Titanic. Because I'm sure there were a lot of things that weren't accurate. But they did a lot well. And they played tribute to a lot of the actual characters. Captain Captain Smith, Thomas Andrews, I mean, Jack and Rose, obviously. I'm just kidding. Like, Molly Brown. (laughs) Wallace Hartley. Like, they had a lot of the main hitters in the movie, too. Um, And actually, I do have a theory about Jack, too. Um, So, the quintet led by Wallace Hartley uh, was played after dinner at a religious um, service while there was another uh, trio that played at the reception area outside the cafe and restaurant. So, the two bands had... um, separate music libraries and they arrange and arrangements so they had not actually played together at all before the sinking Mm -hmm. around 30 minutes after colliding with the iceberg the uh, two bands probably called by uh, chief purser mcelroy or captain smith they were ordered to play in the first class lounge 
Uh, passengers that were present remember them playing lively tunes like Alexander's Ragtime Band. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually unknown if the two piano players at the t- or were in the band at this time. So they might have just had someone that knew how to play the piano join them. Yes. Um, just after I talk about this timekeeping nonsense, the exact time is unknown, but the musicians later moved to the boat deck level of the first class entrance. Okay. I have um, a question. Why are they telling... Yes. Why the fuck are they telling to, the band to play while the boat is sinking? They wanted to keep people in good spirits. That's really great for those people. Um, but this, again, makes it into, oh, all you third-class people? By the way, you have to die in order yeah. for our first-class people to live. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's, um, it's very sorry, strange to me, and I don't like it. Mm. Sorry, there was one tidbit of information I wanted to find. However, I should have wrote his name down when I did all this Googling, but it's my theory on <laughs> Jack. Um... But yeah, they basically were like, we don't want anyone to panic, so let's play some nice, fun tunage. Um, alright. So like I said, they remember playing lively tunes, like Alexander's Ragtime Band, which is like a upbeat kind of thing. Um, it is unknown if the two piano players were uh, in the band, or if they were just passengers. And, um, so contrary to belief... There's actually no evidence that they moved to the deck itself. So, like, in the movie, they were yes, on deck, but they think that they were just in the lounge. Um, but they, it is noted that they remained inside as uh, Stuart Edward Brown claimed to have seen them on top of the staircase at the first-class entrance. So, the Titanic story, this is where they get a little bit wrong. Part of the enduring folklore of the Titanic sinking and on the movie is that the musicians played the hymn Near My God to Thee. Mm-hmm. Which, do you need me to play it? No, it's fine. But it's, it's the sad song. Yes. You know the yes. song. It's the sad one. As the boat's going down, the old couple's holding each other, the yes. mom's telling her kids yes, to go to sleep that. and not wake up. And I don't, I don't cry. Need, I cry listening to it. I don't want to listen to it again. <laughs> mostly because I don't need to. Yes. Um, a lot of people claim that this is pretty dubious, and they don't believe that it was actually played as the ship was going down. Um, The claim surfaced among some of the earliest reports of the sinking. Um, The hymn became so closely associated with the Titanic's disaster that actually its opening bars were carved onto the grave monument of the Titanic's bandmaster, Wallace Hartley, which was one of the ones who perished. So they actually carved the song into his monument because they thought it was so close. Um, however, Archibald Gracie empathetically denied on his own account, um, written soon after the sinking, that the radio operator, also Harold Bride, said um, he had heard the band playing A Ragtime and then Autumn, mm-hmm. by which he may have meant uh, Archibald Joyce's then popular waltz uh, Song de Autumn, which means Autumn Dream. Uh, George Orwell, the bandmaster of the rescue ship, Carpathia, who spoke with the survivors, uh, he related that, quote, the ship's band in an emergency is expected to play to calm the passengers. After the Titanic struck the iceberg, the band began to play bright music, dance music, and comic songs. 
anything that would prevent the passengers becoming, from becoming panic-stricken. Uh, various awe-stricken passengers began to think that death had faced them and asked the bandmaster to play hymns. One of, the which, one of the ones that appealed to all was Near My God to Thee. According to Gracie, who was near the band until that section of the deck went under, the tunes played by the band were cheerful, but he did not recognize any of them claiming that if they had played Nearer My God to Thee as claimed in the newspaper, I assuredly, quote, um, would have noticed it and regarded it as tactless, as a tactless warning of immediate death to us all and one likely to create panic. I mean, panic. I'm pretty so sure there are... they showed it playing whenever it was like actually like doo, 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 like actually like on yeah. the sinking yeah, yeah, yeah. path not like yes. whenever everybody's scurrying around trying to get in the lifeboat yeah um which would make sense there were several survivors yeah um there was actually several survivors who were among the last to leave the ship including uh brown who claimed that the band continued playing until the ship began her final plunge uh, Gracie claimed that the band stopped playing at least 30 minutes before the vessel sank. A.H. Barkworth, a first-class passenger, said, quote, I do not wish to detract from the bravery of anybody, but I might mention that when I first came on the deck, the band was playing a waltz. Um, the next time I passed where the band was stationed, the members had thrown down their instruments and were not seen. It is possible that the band had temporarily stopped play- playing to retrieve their life belts, and then they resumed. So... Oh, okay. So um, they weren't actually playing for that long either. They were kind of like, no, everybody's no, no. getting out of here. We got to get the fuck out of here too. Yeah, they started about a half hour after the ship hit the iceberg. And then they stopped about a half hour before the ship went down. Mm-hmm. And it sank for about two hours and 40 minutes. So they were probably playing for about an hour and a half while the ship was going down. Okay, but that still only but still at some point during this to get the fuck off the ship, which is... um. Yeah. Don't do that. No, maybe throw down the violin. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that sounds like a good plan to me. Yep. So, um, Bride heard the band playing as he left the radio cabin. He was one of the two operators, um, which was now awash in the company of the other radio operator, Jack Phillips. Uh, he had fought a crewman who Bride thought was a stoker or someone from below decks who had snuck into the radio cabin and attempted to steal Phillips's life belt. Bride wrote later that he did his duty and he hoped he finished. Um, I hope I finished the man. I don't know. We left him in the cabin floor of the radio room and he was not moving. So it sounds like Bride fought this man and killed him. Oh, okay. uh, The radio operators went into the opposite directions Phillips aft and bride forward towards classable lifeboat B. Okay, that's... Uh, so yeah, it sounds casual. like this guy broke in and they killed him. They finished him, at least. Uh, I did my duty. <laughs> uh, Archibald Gracie was also heading aft, but as he made his way towards the stern, he found that the path was blocked by a mass of humanity several lines deep, covering the boat deck facing us. Uh, there were hundreds of third-class passengers who had finally made it onto the deck just as the last lifeboats departed. Uh, he kind of gave up on the idea of going aft and jumped into the water to get away from the crowd. Which, cool. it does beg a second to I point know. out the fact that jumping into the water is a terrible idea off a, off a ship like the Titanic. Yes. 
I have my favorite story of a survivor that I will tell you when the time is right. But we're getting pretty damn close to the okay, right time. Because I'm super <laughs> um, excited to hear one of those. This is my, my, my absolute favorite fun fact about the Titanic. I, I have a brand new one from all this research. And it might save a life one day. We never know. Never know. So this isn't it. But, um, <laughs> this isn't it. But around around 2.15, the Titanic's angle in the water began to increase even more rapidly as water poured into the uh, unflooded parts of the ship through the deck hatches. Uh, her suddenly increasing angle caused what once forever called a giant wave to wash along the ship from the forward end of the boat, uh, sweeping many people into the sea. The parties who were trying to launch collapsible boats A and B, including six officer Moody and Colonel Archibald Gracie, were swept away along with two boats, uh, boat B, which was, uh, floating, uh, upside down with, uh, Harold Bride trapped underneath it. And boat A, which ended up partly flooded with its canvas not raised. So remember, like, the bottom was wooden, but the sides were canvas. Uh-huh. So it was a partially floating, partially sinking boat. Okay. Um, Bride and Gracie made it into boat B, but Moody perished. Oh. Uh, Lightoller, who had attempted to launch collapsible B, your favorite character, yes. who had attempted to launch collapsible B, opted to abandon his post as he realized it would be futile to head aft and dived into the sea from the roof of the officer's quarters. He was sucked into the mouth of a ventilation shaft, but was blown clear by a terrific blast of hot air and emerged right next to a capsized lifeboat. Uh, Are you telling me this bitch the survived? The photo collapsed. Uh, I can't remember. There were so many people that I was trying to keep track of. I, I think I might give you an answer in a few minutes. Um, <laughs> I feel they, like if he survived, he, we would have was had a, a better opinion of him because he would have told a better story. That's true. That's true. He'd have been like, no, I put everybody in lifeboats. What do you mean? Nah, they jumped out. Full. I don't know what you're talking about. I had 70 people in each lifeboat. Yep. <laughs> um, I mean, if there's any descendants of Light Roller out there, I am sorry. I keep butchering his last name. And I have been shit-talking him this entire time. But come on. To put empty seats in lifeboats during a crisis. They're, get they're it together. And they're like, yeah, uh, yeah. We know. He deserved it. <laughs> we have changed our names. <laughs> um, anyway. The, the forward funnel uh, actually collapsed under its own weight. Which actually crushed several people. You probably remember that from the movie. Uh, uh, including Charles Dwayne Williams. As it fell into the water and only narrowly missed a lifeboat. It closely missed a uh, light roller and created a wave that washed the boats 40 or 50 yards clear of the sinking ship, which is good because you don't want to be close to a big ship when it's going down because you get sucked into it. Uh, those still on the Titanic felt her structure shuddering as it underwent immense stresses as first class, first class passenger Jack Thayer described it. Uh, quote, occasionally there had been a muffled thud or deadened explosion within the ship. Now, without warning, she seemed to start forward, moving forward into the water at an angle of about 15 degrees. Mm. The movement of the water rushing up toward us was accompanied by a rumbling bore mixed with more muffled explosions. It was like standing under a steel railway bridge with an express train passing overhead mingled with the noise of a pressed steel factory and wholesale breakage of China. (laughs) Have you ever written anything that descriptive in your goddamn life, Ellen? (laughs) 
Never. Yeah. True, true masterpiece that is. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, eyewitnesses saw the Titanic stern rising high into the air as the ship tilted down into the water. It was said to have reached an angle of about 30 to 45 degrees. It um, was revolving apparently around a center of gravity as a stern of midships, as Lawrence Beasley later put it. Many um, survivors described a great noise, which some attributed to the boilers exploding. Beasley described it as a partly a groan, partly a rattle, and partly a smash and it was a it was not a sudden roar as an explosion should be. It went on successfully for some seconds, possibly fifteen to twenty. Uh, he attributed it to the engines and machinery coming loose from their bolts and bearings and falling through the compartments, smashing everything in their way. Which I would love to be a fish watching all of this right now. <laughs> I would. I would! You know, like a fly on the wall. I'd love to be a fish in the ocean just watching all this. Like Just that guppy swimming past. To see how... Fucking cunts deserve like, it. Holy shit. Um, after another minute, the lights uh, flickered once and then permanently went out, plunging into darkness. I think this was about 2.15, 2.18 I read so somewhere. So literally like, like minutes, minutes before it went. it went below the water. Yeah. Yeah, it was minutes. Um, Jack Thayer recalled seeing groups of the 1,500 people still aboard clinging to clusters or bunches uh, like swarming bees only to fall in masses, pairs, or singly as the great after part of the ship, 250 feet of it rose into the sky. So you remember when the stern went up and everybody's falling down the deck of the ship, hitting things? Yep. Okay. Are you ready for the best fun fact? Sure. What's the best fun fact? I want to know. Okay. I want to know. The ship's baker... Uh, what was his name? Charles... Jehugan? <laughs> J-O-U-G-H-I-N? Don't pull, don't pull something saying that. Jehugan? It's all good. I'm trying. <laughs> My hero, basically. I want to get his name right. Um, the ship's baker... As he knew the ship was going down, he did what any sane man would do. He consumed an entire bottle of whiskey. Okay, that's fair. Are you listening? That's fair. And he held on to the flagstaff as the ship went into the water. And, at, and he kept holding it the entire time. And he stepped off as the ship went into the water, keeping his head dry the entire time because he had a life jacket on. And just stepped off into the water and then swam to the nearest lifeboat. So the alcohol in his system kept him warm enough so that he survived swimming to the lifeboat and got on and lived. So you're telling me this bitch full yes. on pulled a Jack yes. Sparrow out of his ass yes. and survived. Yes. Tell the tale. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Where are his descendants? We need to marry him. That is the superior... I need, I need them to come forward right now. <laughs> like, that is... It's insane because it was... Again, it was... You know how they say you have an alcohol blanket when you drink. It keeps you warm. Or at least makes you feel yeah, warm. It does. But the alcohol on his body, as well as obviously he kept his head out of the water. 
which is smart. Like, I don't know many people that drink an entire bottle of whiskey that are then smart enough to get their head out of the fucking Babe, water. that's literally everybody not one but you. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, swim it. Oh my God, it's cold. You would, you would um, literally see the water and be like, oh my God, water, <coughs> jump in. And then, wait a and minute. then have that reaction of, oh crap, it's cold. Mm-hmm. But listen, we know that you lose most of the heat through your head. So by drinking the alcohol and keeping his head dry, he survived long enough to get into a lifeboat. Because not everybody that got pulled into a lifeboat survived, Ellen. That's yes, the thing. Most, a lot of if everybody that got grabbed and pulled into one... Exactly. But, like, at first when I read this, like, they were like, oh, he kept his head dry the whole time. I was like, big whoop. He didn't get his hair wet. And then I was like, oh, I understand. <laughs> the alcohol blanket and his dry head made him survive. I can't, so, I can't in a crisis, public service announcement, drink an entire bottle of the liquor of your choice and keep your hair wet, or your hair dry, <laughs> and you might survive the sinking of an ocean liner in the North Atlantic. <laughs> Yes. Don't skip the whiskey, people. That's the, uh, that's the ultimate answer here. <laughs> Don't skip the whiskey. Sorry, that is my favorite fun fact from the entire just, research that I did. I was so excited to tell that to it's you. It's just, it's just, it's just, for lack of a better word, just chef's kiss it's, perfect. He literally was the chef. He was exactly. the baker. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. My hero. <laughs> I feel like he's definitely done that at least once before, so uh, maybe we should keep an eye on him. <laughs> maybe he knows what actually happened here. <laughs> he, okay. he saw some shit. So, after my hero survived the sinking of the Titanic, um, we'll go into the Titanic's final moments now. Um, so of course she was subjected to extreme opposing forces. There was the flooding of the bow pulling her down while the air in the stern was keeping her at the surface. Um, which were, all of this was concentrated at one of the weakest points, points in the structure, which was the area of the engine room hatch. So shortly after the lights went out, uh, the ship split apart. Um, the submerged bow may have remained attached to the stern by the keel for a short time, pulling the stern to a high angle before separating and leaving the stern to float for a few minutes longer. Uh, the forward part of the stern will have flooded pretty rapidly, causing it to tilt and then settle briefly until sinking. So again, the ship disappeared from view at 20, or sorry, 2.20 in the morning, so two hours and 40 minutes after hitting the iceberg. Uh, Jack Thayer reported that it rotated on the surface, uh, gradually turning her deck away from us as though to hide from our sight, the awful spectacle. And then uh, with the dead noise of the bursting of her last few uh, bulkheads, she slid quietly into the sea. Which is pretty sad. She did not go quietly, let's face it. She yeah, did, not, bitch made she did not go quietly into the night. <laughs> Contrary to popular belief, Ellen and Kayla are under the impression that she did not go quietly. It sounded like she was pretty goddamn loud the entire time. The whole time, and we should be proud of her. A, an actual hissy fit, if you will, with all the steam. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> um, so the Titanic's surviving officers and some of the prominent survivors testified that the ship sank in one piece, 
which was a belief that was affirmed by the British and American inquiries to the disaster. So Archibald Gracie, who was on the promenade deck with the band, uh, by the second funnel stated that the Titanic's deck was intact at the time she sank. And when I sank with her, there was over seven sixteenths of the ship already underwater, and there was no indication of the impending break in the ship. Um, Ballard later argued that many of the survivors' accounts indicated that the ship had broken in two as she was sinking. As the engines are now known to have stayed in one place along with uh, most of the boilers, the great noise that was heard by witnesses and the momentary settling of the stern were presumably caused by the breakup of the ship rather than the loosening of her fittings or boiler explosions. Oh, okay. So it's possible that they heard it, but they didn't necessarily see it happen, and then it kind of broke through the rest of the way on its way down, or whenever it hit the ocean floor. Yes. And I think I put it in later, because I do remember writing it. I just don't know why I didn't put it in right here. Um, So a lot of the people that were... So obviously there was an... a huge investigation after this ship went down. And I do remember reading that there were um, people that were getting paid off to say that the ship went down in one piece because they didn't want anybody questioning the structural integrity of the ship during this investigation. So a lot of people were trying to claim that it went down in one piece. There were a lot of people saying it went down in two pieces, but it wasn't until 75 years later where they found the ship in two pieces that they could actually confirm for sure it went down in two pieces. Um, So there's a couple different theories about how the ship actually broke into two. Uh, The most common one is the top-down theory, which is the Mingo theory, which was so named for its creator, Roy Mingo. Um, It states that the breakup was actually centralized on the structural weak point at the entrance of the first boiler room, and that the uh, structural weak point at the entrance... Uh, was where the breakup formed first and then the upper decks um, and also on the upper decks before shooting down to the keel. Uh, The breakup totally separated the ship up to the uh, double bottom, which acted as kind of a hinge connecting the bow and stern. And then from this point, the bow was able to pull down the stern until the double bottom failed and both segments of the ship finally separated. The Mingo theory postulates that the ship broke from the compression forces and not from fracture tension, which resulted in a bottom-to-top break. Mm. And um, this model, which they actually redid this model many times with, like, life-size, or not life-size, but, like, to-scale models of the ship, as well as, like, with the strikes, the the compartments floating. Like, they did a lot of work with this to look into, actually, like, how it broke and fell into pieces. Um, But in this model, the uh, double bottom failed, first and it was actually forced to buckle upwards into the lower decks and as the breakup shot up into the upper decks the ship was actually held together by the b deck which fe- which featured six large uh doubler plates which were trapezoidal steel segments meant to prevent cracks from forming in the smokestack um uptake while they were at sea and it actually acted as a buffer and pushed the fractures away as the hull's contents spilled out uh onto the ship the B-deck failed and caused the aft tower and forward tower superstructures to detach from the stern as the bow was freed and sank. So, a couple different theories. Of course, no one knows exactly, but based on what they found and how it's positioned and accounts that they heard, they think they can kind of piece together a story of exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, as the pieces went under, the bow and stern took only about five to six minutes to sink, 
uh, once they hit, went underwater, they sank 3,795 meters or 12,451 feet for you Americans um, to the ocean floor, which uh, they spiled a trail of heavy machinery, tons of coal, and large quantities of debris from the Titanic's interior. So about two and a half miles down <laughs> since the Titanic at the bottom of the Atlantic. Yes. Um, the two parts of the ship landed about 600 meters or 2,000 feet apart from each other on a, uh, pretty un, like, disturbed area of seabed, which is really convenient, believe it or not. We'll get into that in a few. Uh, the streamlined bow section continued to descend at an angle that it had taken at the surface. So remember, the bow was going down first, so it stayed at that angle. And it actually struck the seabed and kind of plowed into it at a speed of about 25 to 30 miles per hour. And its momentum caused it to dig deep into the seabed and buried this first section up to about 66 feet deep in sediment before it came to a stop. Wow. So it did some damage at the seabed. It went down. It was high, heavy. Yeah. Um, the sudden deceleration caused the bow structure to buckle downwards by several degrees, just forward of the bridge. The decks at the rear end of the bow section, which had already been weakened through the breakup collapse on one on top of another so not the perfect little crash landing down there no definitely not mm-hmm. so the stern section appeared to have descended almost vertically probably rotating around as it fell kind of like they were saying it was doing at the surface mm-hmm. uh empty tacks and cofferdams imploded as they descended tearing open the structure and folding back the steel ribbing on the poop deck the section that landed, the section actually landed with such force that it buried itself about 49 feet deep at the rudder. Um, the decks pancaked down on top of each other and the whole plating splayed out on the sides. Uh, and debris continued to rain down uh, across the seabed for several hours after the sinking. Wow. So bits and pieces just kept falling for hours. Um, all right. So let's get back to our passengers and crew in the water. How am I doing on time? We are at 45 minutes on this one. Perfect. Okay. So, of course, in the immediate aftermath of the sinking, uh, hundreds of passengers and crew were left dying in the icy sea, surrounded by debris from the ship. The Titanic's uh, disintegration uh, during her descent to the seabed caused buoyant chunks of debris, Timber beams, wooden doors, <coughs> Jack and Rose, uh, furniture, <laughs> paneling, and chunks of cork from the bulkheads to rocket to the surface. No, I'm serious. Like, this shit went down, and then it's all super buoyant. So imagine it coming, popping oh right back God. up. Oh, God. I wonder if it, anybody got hit by that. What happened? Uh, it does say that these injured and possibly killed some of the swimmers. Um, and, of course, uh, others used the debris to try to keep themselves afloat. Mm-hmm. Like the door. That Jack and Rose could have absolutely both fit on. <laughs> anyway, they're not real. She's so salty about it. <laughs> anyway, um, so this is the hard thing that I couldn't wrap my head my head around, but Daniel kind of made sense of it to me. The water was recorded at a temperature of negative two degrees Celsius, which is twenty eight degrees Fahrenheit, okay. which is lethally cold, literally. Now I was under the impression. That if water was 32 degrees Fahrenheit, that is freezing. So the water freezes. But because the water is moving and it's salt water 
and it's not like a small area, that water can be 22 degrees Celsius or 28 degrees Celsius Fahrenheit, sorry, but still not be frozen. And of course there were little icebergs floating in the water. So it makes sense that the water is colder than 32 degrees, but it's still a little baffling yes. to me. Yes. I mean, just because 32 degrees is going to be the freezing point of water doesn't mean that water that's actively sitting there moving and having that kinetic energy yeah. is going to freeze like that. Kind of kind of like water at the bottom of the ocean. Like the water down there is very cold, but we don't have ice chunks at the bottom mm-hmm. of the ocean, if that makes sense. Exactly. Um Okay, so your favorite character, second officer, Light Aller. Oh, Lord, this um, motherfucker. He described, he described this water as feeling like a thousand knives being driven into his body as he entered the sea. And as someone who has dove with penguins, I can tell you that water that is approximately twice as warm as this water at 48 degrees Fahrenheit still feels like that. So, yes, I can only imagine what 22 degrees Fahrenheit, 28 degrees Fahrenheit feels like. It is... Probably terrible. Probably. Yes. Because at 48, I could only last about 90 minutes with a 7 mil wetsuit 90 on. minutes? You lasted so 90 I cannot minutes in 48 degree water with a 7 mil wetsuit? That was that was my record, yes. Wow. I can't. <laughs> mm-hmm. 10 out of 10 do not recommend, but there were penguins that warmed my heart. The so same penguins attacked people, <laughs> just to be clear. Don't feel good, bad from penguins. Yes. Yes, but there were no penguins at the sinking of the Titanic, unfortunately. Um, no, pe- no penguins sitting on an so, iceberg singing, my heart will go on. <laughs> Near my God to thee. <laughs> um, oh, just fun fact. You know how, like, Instagram likes to send you ads for things that are, like, relevant to yes. you? Um, I'm going to screenshot and send to you, but I keep getting ads for like a replica necklace of the heart of the sea, the blue oh, sapphire yes. heart necklace from the Titanic. Yes. I keep getting that and I'm like, listen. I want it. I don't I'm I'm like, I don't need it, but I maybe I do. I don't right, know. So what but, you're saying is it's definitely a good gift that Daniel should get for you at some point or another. <laughs> well he can't hear you, but yes. <laughs> okay. Tell tell him to listen to this podcast. Just this part in particular. He <laughs> He might, he might. I might send him the link. He'll find it. Um, <laughs> but, like, part of me is like, I don't need this. Why is it popping up now? And I'm like, oh, maybe because I've spent literally two weeks just obsessively reading and studying the Titanic. Yes. That, w- Perhaps. that might explain it. <laughs> just slightly. <sighs> I need to just get a lifeboat at this rate. That's what I feel like I need. True. Or one of the um, little <laughs> GPS okay. things. One of those SOS panic yes. buttons. Exactly. Since we follow SOS now. Exactly. Oh, and Daniel and I actually had a conversation about this because I don't remember what he thought it meant, but I said, no, I'm pretty sure it means save our ship or save our souls. Save our ships. Oh, he said, well, he said it stood for signal of stress. And I said, I've never heard that. I thought it was save our ship. And we googled it, and it is save our ship. <laughs> but signal of stress sounds sounds good because, like, if you send out an SOS signal when you're in the woods, you're not trying to save a ship. You're trying to signal stress or save our soul. So, point is, we googled it. I was right. <laughs> okay, good. 
Alright, so back to the 28 degree Fahrenheit water, which was lethally cold, like I said. Um, of course, the sudden immersion into this freezing water could cause death within minutes. And of course, if you don't have an exposure suit on, this is your public service announcement to always wear your wetsuits, um, you could die from either cardiac arrest, um, uncontrollable breathing of water, uh, cold shock, or suffocation from not being able to get a good breath in, which is actually not what everybody commonly believes, which was hypothermia. So, of course, you're in cold water for a long time. You're going to die of hypothermia. But in water this cold, you actually die of other things before you die of hypothermia. Um, Wow. I didn't actually think about that. So, almost all of those in the water died of cardiac arrest or other bodily reactions to freezing water in 15 to 30 minutes. And if you think about it, like the suffocation, because when you're cold, you're... Mm -hmm. You can't get a good full breath, so you yeah. actually suffocate yourself by just not being able to breathe fully. Wow. Um, That's, I honestly, I would not have thought of that. Every, everyone thought it was hypothermia, but it was cardiac arrest from just the shock, cold shock, like I said, um, or just not being able to control your breathing and so suffocating. So does that mean that Rose would have died? Um, see, Rose would have died of hypothermia yes. because she was not in the water, she was up on the, on the door, mm-hmm. so she had a better chance because she was out of the water out of it a, a little, little bit. bit. She was still wet. She had still so like during the movie, she had gone underwater a couple times. So that alone is enough to have killed you from exposure, is the thing. Um, but like keeping yourself somewhat dry or keeping getting yourself as dry as possible is important. That's why we say like. If you're cold, take off your wetsuits. Like, it might feel cold in the moment, but getting that, like, material off of you and getting that warm or that cold water off of you is important. Yes. Even if you're naked but dry, you are better off than being wet and feeling warm. Um, so she she might have suffered from hypothermia. That's why, like, you remember when she blew the mm-hmm. whistle, she was, like, pretty fucking close to death herself. Yeah. But Jack probably didn't survive after 30 minutes in the water. Um, so out of everybody that was in the water, only 13 people were helped into lifeboats. And survived. Even though there were room for about 500 more people into the lifeboats. Um, this is kind of a sad part too. I mean, I know it's all sad, but here's more sadness. Um, those in the lifeboats were pretty horrified to hear the sound of what Lawrence Beasley called... Quote, every possible emotion of human fear, despair, agony, fierce resentment, and blind anger mingled. Uh, They were certain of those with notes of infinite surprise, as though each one were saying, how is it possible that this awful thing is happening to me, that I could be caught in this death trap? And Jack Thayer compared it to the sound of locusts on a summer night. So kind of like a like a loud moaning humming like sound of just despair and agony um george reams who jumped moments before the titanic sank described it as a dismal moaning sound which he'll never forget that came from those poor people who were floating around calling for help it was horrifying mysterious and supernatural 
the noise of people in the water screaming, yelling, and crying was a tremendous shock to the occupants of the lifeboats, uh, many of whom had been led to believe that everybody escaped from the ship before it sank. Wow, that's pretty fucked up. Um, I mean, like, there's there's yeah. a certain line there that once you get people into the lifeboats and them still believing, like, oh, they're actually totally fine. Yeah. That's just I think that's just denial. Yeah, I, think that's I mean, I don't know who's telling them. They're just kind of like the people that didn't lift a hand to help themselves. They're just kind of like, no, God will help mm-hmm. us or... No, they have enough lifeboats for everyone. Everyone's fine. I'm fine. Everyone's fine. Exactly. So, probably a huge shock that, like, not everyone was surviving. Um, Beasley later wrote that the cries came as a thunderbolt, unexpected, inconceivable, and incredible. And, um... No one in any of the lifeboats uh, standing off a few hundred yards away from all of this could have escaped the paralyzing shock of knowing that so short of a distance away, a tragedy unbelievable in its magnitude was being enacted and they were all helpless and in could no way advert or diminish that there were 1,500 people freezing and dying in the water. Mm-hmm. Um, and chairman of the board, Bruce Ismay, had to listen to it and endure it. Good. Yes. Yes. Indeed. Um, Colonel Archibald Gracie was one of the survivors who made it to Classel Boat B. He never recovered from his ordeal and actually died eight months later after the sinking. Wow. From depression? Um, um, just from his exposure, I think. Oh, okay. He probably never... Like, they extended his life a little bit, but um, not really. Yeah. I just read ahead. I remember that your favorite character does in fact survive. God damn it. Um, so only a few of those in the water actually survived. Among them were Archibald Gracie, Jack Thayer, and Charles uh, Lightroller, who made it to the capsized Classel Boat B. Around 12 crew members climbed onto Classel B and they rescued those until uh, some, about 35 men were clinging to the upturned hull. Because again, this boat wasn't completely out of the water. This boat was like half yes. under. Um Realizing the risk to the boat being swamped by the masses of swimmers around them, they paddled slowly away, ignoring the pleas of dozens of swimmers asking to be allowed on board. Um, On his account, Gracie wrote of the admiration he had for those in the water. In no instance am I happy to say did I hear any word of rebuke from a swimmer because of a refusal to grant assistance. Uh, One refusal was met by with a manly voice of a powerful man. And he said, all right, boys, good luck and God bless you. So somebody asking for help was told, no, we can't help you. And he says, all right, boys, good luck and God bless you. I am not that big of a person. I am also not that big of a person. I think he was just being nice to those people because they were definitely dying. I definitely feel like he got shouted at and a lot of fuck yous. Like, I I don't Mm -hmm. care what he says at this point. It's like he he definitely got a lot of fuck yous. Um, Gracie said that he heard men on board Classwell B saying that Captain Smith was on the boat and Stoker Harry Sr. and Entree Cook Isaac uh, Mannard said that Smith was there. Uh, However, Fireman Walter Hurst said he thought that the swimmer who cried out, all right, boys, good luck and bless you, was Smith. Oh, wow. Uh, Hurst said that the man cheered 
her said that the man cheered on the occupants by saying, good boys, good lads, with the voice of authority. Hearst was deeply moved by the swimmer's valor, reached out to him with an oar, but the man was already dead. Um, so, not sure. Because Smith didn't survive, so that could have been him. He might have been on the boat. He might have gone yeah. off the boat. Not a lot, sure. But it would have been... Uh, several yeah. other swimmers... Yeah. Um, I'd like to think it was him. That's a pretty yeah. sweet thing. Um, good luck, boys. God bless you. That's why he was so like, yeah, I understand. I'm the captain. I should go down with the ship. Goodbye. Yeah, Rather you know than just what? Rather passenger who's like, fuck this. Put me on the, the boat. That's the one person who it makes sense for. Yes. Um, there were a bunch of other swimmers, about 20 or more, that did reach classical boat B, which was upright but partly flooded as the sides had not actually been properly raised. Um, its occupants had to sit for hours in a foot of freezing water, and many of them died from hypothermia throughout the night. So that's where hypothermia does come into play, is when you're dying from exposure, but not the actual shock of cardiac arrest. Gotcha. Okay. I didn't realize that you could actually die from cardiac arrest just because of cold water, being in cold water for more than a couple minutes. Oh, yeah. Freaking, freaking freezing. Yeah. And just to be clear, to see all those museum exhibits that we talked about at the beginning of this were very misleading, being like, can you survive in this water for very long? Well, no, Susan, nobody can, because you'd die of cardiac arrest <laughs> no, before you die of the cold, dumbass. I'm putting my hand on it while I'm wearing a hoodie, jeans, socks, and shoes that are all dry. You submerge me in this water. That's a very freaking different story. No. no, absolutely not. Um, okay. So further out, uh, about there was the other eighteen lifeboats, most of which had a bunch of empty seats, and they drifted as the occupants debated what, if anything, they should do to rescue the swimmers. Uh, boat number four, having remained near the sinking ship, seems to have been the closest to the site of the sinking, around 160 feet away. Uh, this had enabled two people to drop into the boat and another one to be picked up from the water before the ship sank. After the sinking, uh, seven or more men were pulled from the water, although two later died. Collapsible D rescued a male passenger who jumped into the water and swam over to the boat immediately after it had been lowered. In all of the other boats, the occupants eventually decided against returning, probably out of fear that they would be capsized in the attempt. 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 Sorry. Um, one of their... Uh, one, someone put their objections bluntly, Quartermaster Hitchens. He commanded lifeboat number six and told the women on his boat that there was no point in returning, as there were only a lot of stiffs there. Uh, that's... Cold. Yeah, that's, that's kind of harsh. I mean, like, no, sweetie, um, they're, they're not coming back with us no matter what we do is probably a good enough answer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, after about 20 minutes, all of the cries began to fade as the swimmers lapsed into unconsciousness and death. Fifth Officer Lowe, in charge of lifeboat 14, waited until the yells and shrieks had subsided for the people to and for the people to thin out before mounting an attempt to rescue those in the water. He gathered together five of the lifeboats and transferred the occupants between them to free up space in 14. 
He then took a crew of seven crewmen and one male passenger who volunteered to help and then rode back to the side of the sinking. The whole operation took about 45 minutes, and by the time they headed back to the site of the sinking, almost all of those in the water were dead, and only a few had voices that could still be heard. Which was Rose and her whistle. Yes. I'm just kidding. I don't Probably know. not. Let's be honest. <laughs> um, Lucy, or uh, Lady Duff Gordon, recalled after the disaster that the very last cry was that of a man who had been calling out loudly, my God, my God. He cried monotonously in a dull, hopeless way. For an entire hour, there had been an awful chorus of shrieks gradually dying into a hopeless moan until this last cry that I speak of, and then all was silent. For the survivors, the dead silence that followed was even worse than the cries for help. Lowe and his crew found four men still alive, one of whom died shortly afterwards. Otherwise, all they could see were the hundreds of bodies and life belts. The dead seemed as if they had perished with the cold as their limbs were all cramped up. Um, so in the other boats, there was still nothing the survivors could do but wait for the arrival of rescue ships because there was still no one there to help. Uh, the air was bitterly cold and several of the boats had taken on water. The survivors could not find any food or drinkable water in the boats and most had no lights. The situation was particularly bad aboard Class Will B, which was only kept afloat by the diminishing air pocket in the upturned hole. So again, boat B is upside down. Yeah. <laughs> People are just holding on to the side of that one. Mm -hmm. um, as dawn approached, the wind rose and the scene became increasingly choppy, forcing those on boat B to stand up to try to balance it. Uh, some, exhausted by the ordeal, fell off into the sea and were drowned. Understandably. Uh... It became steadily more difficult for the rest to keep their balance on the hull, with waves washing against it. Archibald Gracie later wrote of how he and the other survivors sitting on the upturned hull were struck by the utter, utter helplessness of their position. Um, in her lifeboat, Molly Brown, I've talked a little bit about her, she took the oar and had the women on her boats take shifts to rowing to try to stay warm. Uh, she was traveling alone just with her friends at the time, but she did not have a husband that she was traveling with. So she did note that she, um, could not understand the pain that a lot of these women were going through that had lost their husbands in this because they were their primary breadwinners of the family. Mm -hmm. So all these women were heading to the new world without their source of, you know, surviving. Yes. And they also had lost their loves. So she did not completely relate, but she did feel bad. So she tried to keep their spirits up, keep them alive by having them row. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I put it in here, but it's actually said that when their lifeboat was picked up by the rescue ship, the, uh, the seamen on board tried to tell the ship to take up their dead first. And Molly threatened to beat him with an oar if he did not send up the women that were freezing to death first. <laughs> So, homie wanted to send up the dead out of respect, and she said, I will beat you with this oar and throw you off the boat if you do not send up these women who are about you to die what? first. I kind of respect her now. No. Right? She was <laughs> rich, but she was like, yeah, you know what? I get it now. Yeah. She there, was good. She was a good one. There was some serious character growth there. Absolutely. I mean, she was a millionaireess, so again, she was the one that, like, reportedly taught Jack how to use the four forks and he, she was the nice one and she was the one that didn't quite fit in. Like, she was trying to work her way up the rich person yeah. ladder. 
But you can kind of see her like, I have had to work for myself kind of yes, attitude. Absolutely. In all of this. And I would love to see her, um, her Broadway show and her movie because I haven't yet. But apparently there is a whole... She's known as unsinkable Molly Brown because she obviously didn't sink. <laughs> yes. All right. I have about six pages left. How are we doing on time? Right. We have 10 to 20-ish minutes. How fast do you think you can go? I can get through this last little I section. I believe in you. So the you rescue. Can do it. <laughs> okay. So... Rescue and departure. Collapsible lifeboat D um, was seen. Um, There's actually a picture of it I have here, but I'll just send you all the pictures later if you want. Okay. Um, it was photographed from the deck of the Carpathia the morning of uh, the 15th of April, 1912. The Titanic survivors were rescued around 4 a.m. So again, the ship went down at 2.20. They were rescued around 4. So... An hour and 40 minutes later. Yeah. Um, from the Carpathia, which had steamed through the night at high speeds and considerable risk, as the ship had to dodge a number of icebergs en route. It's crazy Dragging. how they Dragging. had to do that. Um, the lights were first spotted around 3.30, which greatly cheered the survivors, although it took several more hours to get everyone brought on board. So the 30 or more men on Classical B finally managed to board uh, two other lifeboats, but one survivor died just before the transfer was made. Sad. I can't... These are the ones that kill me. It's the ones that get into the lifeboats and they still die. Like they made it so far. Uh-huh. Um, so Classical A was also in trouble as it was now nearly awash. Many of those aboard uh, died overnight. The remaining survivors were transferred from A to another lifeboat, leaving three bodies in the boat, which was left to drift away. This was later recovered a month later by White Star Line RMS Oceanic with the bodies still aboard. They did a full-scale mission to go out and retrieve as many bodies as they possibly could after this happened, actually. Yeah. I'm so they did their best to uh, handle the death. Um, da 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 so those on the Carpathia were startled by the scene that greeted them as the sun rose. Um, of course, they were seeing fields of ice on which, like, points of the landscape rested um, innumerable pyramids of ice. So shit ton of ice. Captain Arthur Rostron of the Carpathia saw ice all around, including 20 large bergs measuring up to 200 feet high and a numerous of smaller bergs as well as ice flows and debris from the Titanic. It appeared to Carpathia's passengers that their ship was in the middle of a vast white plain of ice uh, studded with icebergs appearing like hills in the distance. As the lifeboats were brought alongside the Carpathia, the survivors came aboard the ship by various means. Some were strong enough to climb the rope ladders, others were hoisted up in slings, and the children were hoisted in mail sacks. <laughs> Alright, I mean, um, that seems sketchy, but whatever. Whatever works. Um, the last lifeboat to reach the ship was your favorite character, Light Arler's <laughs> um, boat number 12 with 74 people aboard, a boat designed to carry 65. And remember, this is the one that was saying women and children only, and now he's got nine people more on his boat than he is supposed to. 
I'm um, happy he finally came around at the wrong time. 9 a.m. Yeah. Good lord. As people are drowning and freezing to death, he finally figured like, it finally out. He's like, finally like, oh, maybe I can fit a few more people than 25. Yeah. Um, there were some scenes of joy as some family members and friends were reunited, but in most cases, hopes were died as uh, loved ones failed to appear. At uh, 9.15, two more of the ships appeared on the scene, the Mount Temple in California, which had finally learned of the disaster when her radio operator uh, woke up. <laughs> And return to duty. But by then, there were no more survivors to rescue. Oh, Lord. Shocking. That is the worst night's sleep ever. That is the best night's sleep ever. <laughs> the Carpathia ever. had been bound. About? Clearly. <laughs> he slept great. <laughs> He's sitting there. Just 12 miles away, 1,500 people are freezing to their yeah. death. Yeah, you have to sleep <laughs> real deep to get through that. Uh... The Carpathia had been bound for uh, Fiumi, Austria-Hungary, which is now Bjike, Croatia. I don't know. But uh, as she had neither the stores nor the medical supplies to cater for the survivors, the captain ordered that a course be calculated to return the ship to New York, where the survivors would be properly looked after. Uh, the Carpathia departed the area, leaving the other ships to carry out the final uh, two-hour search to find the rest of the bodies. And that is the end of that section. We are five pages from the end. Okay. All right. We're going to let you sleep. Thank you. The rest of us are going to go have some fun. Fun Woo! being. Go have fun. I don't even know what I'm going to do. But, so, this has been episode three in the saga of the Titanic with two blondes and a bloody boat. Woohoo! We got one more coming at you once everyone is mentally prepared for it. But, once uh, Kaylin is back to yeah. uh, having a normal rest schedule. <laughs> I'm trying, guys. Once she's no longer sleep deprived um, anyway. But seriously, thank you all for listening. I know I have been going on and on. I know Ellen's happy to sit back and relax and make her book, but oh, uh, it's almost done. you guys have been listening to me read my I warned her. I did tell her it was 34 she pages did. of content. So we are on page 29. And I so I haven't even gotten to my book yet. I have just gotten through what actually happened. But, so in the meantime, this has been Ellen and Kaylin. Yes. Yes, 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 Two blondes on a bloody boat. And we will talk to you next week. Yep. See Goodbye. ya. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.